you. So there's a riddle to start the service with. The riddle is, what does an old Cessna 206 in a hangar in Togo, a team of young, young missionaries dedicating their life to hopefully serve for at least a quarter of a century in a little country in Africa, little kids running around in a remote village of Africa, a church in West Virginia, and a baby in a manger, what does all that have to do with Christmas? That's our riddle. Here's a quiz. A Christmas IQ quiz. I'll give you the phrase of a song and you fill in the blank. I'm dreaming of a... Oh, you're good. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. You know that one. How about in a meadow we can build a... You got that. Now, how about this song? Let's shift gears a little bit. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners. Say it again. God and sinners reconciled two parties that were once far away from each other, turning and coming back together and making peace. Two parties at war now making peace. How about this one? God rest ye merry gentlemen. This is our politically incorrect one. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. A Savior to save us from Satan's power. When we had gone astray. How about this one? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. And do you know that Christmas is for sinners? Let's take our quiz a little bit further and let's see if you know the great stories of Christmas. I'll give you a clue and you say the name of the story. How about the one where the guy sells his beloved pocket watch and the girl cuts off her beautiful hair to sell it? What's that story? Ah, the gift of the Magi. It's a classic, isn't it? How about this story? How about the one about the guy who thinks his life has had no impact, is meaningless, and he's going to jump off a bridge? And Oh, it's a not-so-wonderful life. How about this one? How about the one about all the people in the desert and they're tired of the kind of food that they're eating and they're grumbling again and so God gets kind of upset with them and he sends snakes into the camp and they begin to get bitten by poisonous snakes and they're dying. You remember the name of that Christmas story? Oh. Did you know that's a Christmas story? In fact, it's point one of our message today, and we're going to begin with the illustration. We're going to begin with the illustration. Number one of our message today, as we solve our riddle, and as we learn a new Christmas story today, 
Number one is an incredible illustration. Our text is going to be John's Gospel and chapter 3 and the classic conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. But I want to show you how Jesus uses a story from the Old Testament as a story to illustrate the reality of the Incarnation. We're in Numbers chapter 21 with this incredible illustration. It's Numbers chapter 21. Now, I want to remind you that it wasn't too many weeks ago that we looked at uh, the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 16 and Numbers chapter 11, where they were grumbling and complaining and moaning about their food and their resources. Do you remember that? And our point was that God's people are to be thankful people. And um, if you're a grumbler or a groaner, you can pretty much be assured you're not a thankful person because thankful people don't grumble. Now in there, we saw where God, early on in their journey, this is the story of Moses, the children of Israel leaving Egypt, uh, the Red Sea parts, Pharaoh's army is drowned, they're wandering in the wilderness, They get very hungry and God gives them manna and quail and that's what he gives them. And in our story from Exodus chapter 16 to Numbers chapter 11 at Thanksgiving time, that was about a year apart and they were still grumbling. In Numbers chapter 21 and the story that Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, 39 years or so have gone by. And guess what they're still doing? They're still grumbling and complaining about God's provision in their lives. Let's read about it. It's Numbers 21, verse 4. And we're just going to butt right into the context of what's happening here. You remember Moses and Aaron are the leaders. Moses said he couldn't talk, so God gave him his brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece. And Aaron was the spiritual leader. They also had a sister named Miriam, and and Miriam has died in the chapter before this, and Aaron has died, and Moses is alone now, and we're at the end of the 40-year window of wandering in the wilderness, largely due to their disobedience. A journey that would have only taken a couple weeks takes 40 years, as an entire generation needs to die off. And God then, in His mercy and grace, will open up the opportunity for them to enter the promised land in a whole new way of living. Well, they're beset by problems. In the beginning of chapter 21, there's a Canaanite king that's hassling them. God delivers them. And then, verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. They're still just wandering around, 39 years into it or so. And the people became, look at this, and the people became impatient. And, as the, and New American Standard, remember we learned, it uses the phrase, very discouraged. They were disheartened, impatient on the way. And the people, look at verse 5, spoke against God and against Moses. This is like... Same hymn, 39th stanza. And listen to what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They said that three days into the journey. They said that one year into the journey. And they're saying it 39 years into the journey. Why? Why are we here? Why did you do this? You've brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water. 
Guess what? For 39 years, they haven't died. Their shoes haven't worn out. Their clothes haven't worn out. It's a bit of an overstatement. They've had plenty of food, plenty of water. They did get hungry and thirsty a few times, but God never dropped them. But oh, they love to complain. I don't know people like this, do you? And look what they say. And for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, I don't know what happens between verses 6 and 7, or verses 5 and 6. It doesn't give us a picture, uh, as it does sometimes, that God burned with anger. Uh, It'll give an anthropomorphic, uh, a human-like description of God's response to the people. It just goes from verse 5 to verse 6, and all we know is that what happened, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. That's all we know. That's all we know. They're mumbling, they're groaning, they're disgusted with God. They don't trust and they don't appreciate their leadership. Aaron's gone, Moses is alone. God hears the grumbling. And all of a sudden, we hear screaming and shrieking throughout the camp as some mother goes in to pick up her child from a nap and finds that a poisonous serpent has bitten it and her child is stiff and dead. We see a man coming out of his tent and he staggers and his heart flutters and his throat constricts and his eyes roll back in his head and he falls forward on the ground dead because he's been bit in the ankle by this venomous, poisonous serpent. We don't know the stories, that's all it tells us, but throughout the camp, many people died. I imagine there were wives screaming at their husbands that they needed to get the snakes out of this room now or I'm leaving And as they do, a snake bites another one of their children. Another woman rolls over dead. And throughout the camp, there's all of a sudden this panic. And God has their attention. Look what it says in verse 7. All it says in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents so that many people in Israel died. And 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. God has a way of uh, kind of organizing our thought life, doesn't he? Kind of putting things in perspective. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And here's Moses, the intercessor again. Pray to the Lord, Moses is who they're talking to, that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. He's like a type of Christ entering in to separate them from the snakes. People who were bitten and dying now have an opportunity to live because of the intercessory work of Moses, just like we have an opportunity to live when Jesus intervenes and intercedes on our behalf. But look what God tells Moses to do. Again, the middle of verse 7, the people say they've sinned. They ask Moses to pray. So Moses, the end of verse 7, prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What a remarkable story. Some of you who like to pursue things a little bit further, we're not going to do it in this service, but you might want to write down 2 Kings 18, verse 4, and find out what the Israelites do to that serpent later on. 2 Kings 
18.4, it's quite interesting and shameful. But get the picture for today. God answers prayer. Moses prays for the people. All the people who are screaming and wailing and people are dying throughout the camp. And I take it it took at least several hours, if not a couple days, to, to forge a bronze serpent... How he did that, I don't know exactly. He puts it on a pole. He sets it up, I take. He tries to find a pile of rocks or something. Sets it up. And then people are hollering to one another, Look at the serpent! Look at the serpent! And somehow, God in His mercy allowed them, as they looked at the serpent, to immediately be healed to, to entire good health and for the residual effects of the venomous snakes to go away as they looked and they believed that the serpent, that bronze serpent, would restore them to health. And it happened. Now we enter into a conversation in John's Gospel in chapter 3. And you might not think of John 3 as a Christmas story, but it is probably, this chapter, one of the clearest explanations of the incarnation of Christ, that is, God putting on flesh and coming to earth. John chapter 3, we're not really looking at Mary and Joseph today, but we're looking at Jesus himself explaining the Christmas story. And John chapter 3 is very much... Though it's familiar where the verses we're going to look at are very much about Christmas and the incarnation of Christ. And this is that passage where Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. Some of you, that'll be a reminder to you. And Nicodemus was a religious leader in Israel. In fact, he must have been one of the, one of the, the top shelf religious leaders because when he comes and asks Jesus a question, Jesus looks back at him and says, aren't you one of the greatest Bible teachers in all of Israel and you don't know the answer to this question? The question that Nicodemus had asked Jesus had evidently been a derivative of Christ's teaching where he had said, you must be born again. And it says earlier in John chapter 3, it says there that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, it's because he didn't really want everybody to know he was hanging around Jesus. Anybody here like that? You want Jesus' answers, but you're not sure you want to be publicly identified with him. And Nicodemus was a little nervous about public opinion and his identity with being seen in a serious conversation with this one that the Pharisees and the Sadducees really had a problem with. He engages in this conversation and he says to Jesus, his question is, how is it, how is it that a man can be born twice? How does he do this? Does he enter into his mother's womb again? And that's where Jesus gives that puzzling answer where he says, um, no, not your mother's womb, but unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot be born again. And that's created a little bit of theological controversy and sometimes there's an acceptable view that that means you have to have be born biologically and then born again spiritually. It's probably not really a reference to that. It's probably very much a reference to a passage in Ezekiel that Nicodemus would have known a lot about. You remember now, Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. He knew Moses. He knew the prophets. He knew the Psalms. He knew his Old Testament. He was a knowledgeable Bible teacher or Old Testament teacher in Israel, a scholar. 
And so Jesus was referencing things that he would have known about. And there in Ezekiel, it uses the illustration of being washed with water in a cleansing, as in the holiness of God. You need to be clean from your sin. And there was a, a, a illustration of that in Ezekiel. A lot of Bible students think that that's what he's talking about, that Jesus is referencing. That's in Ezekiel chapter 36. It has to do with being sprinkled clean from the filthiness of sin. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, you might want to look at that sometime and, and ponder that. And Jesus is explaining to him how to be born again. So let's let our, our eyes go now uh, to verse 14, to verse 13. And Jesus credentials himself with Nicodemus in verse 13. And he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, speaking about himself, the son of man. In other words, I've been to heaven and I've descended and I'm going to give you the answer. Here's what you need to know. He now references the snake story from the book of Numbers that we just read that Nicodemus would have known all about. Nicodemus totally understood the history of Israel and their wanderings. And so Jesus is pointing this out to Nicodemus. And look what Jesus says. Immediately says, I've descended from heaven. I'm going to tell you the truth is what he's saying there. And as Moses, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus would have known this story precisely. He knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. He goes on and he says those most familiar verses that we know so well. In fact, we know them so well, they lose their impact. The familiarity just makes them kind of ho-hum to us. Look what he says. Let's reread verse 14 and 15 and read on. And, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does that is come come to the light, what is true comes to the light then. So it may be clearly seen. Their life will change. The fruit of righteousness will be there that his works have been carried out in God. What an interesting passage. I wonder if you've thought about this as one of the great Christmas stories. And I wonder if you, like Jesus, would have illustrated it with a snake story. Well, we've had this incredible illustration that the reason Jesus came and was born in a manger was so that He would ultimately be lifted up on a stick, that is the cross, so that people who are snake bit in sin could look and live. But what I want to show you, point two of our message is, is I want to show you the mind and the heart of God. Number two, God's unbelievable motivation. Why did God do this? Why did God do this? Look what he says in verse 16. For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Notice in verse 17 that his, in verse 16 His motive is love and He did not come to condemn the world. I think a lot of people think that God sent Jesus here and that God is just waiting for the opportunity to squish people. That God would be able to condemn sinners. It's not true. The very heart of God was that He loved people so much He loves sinners that He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is the heartbeat of the Christmas story. Notice God's unbelievable motivation is His love for sinners. Listen, starting with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, when Adam violated God's standards and he willingly went against what God said, he allowed his wife to to eat, he approved of it, he entered in, he engaged, he refused to take leadership. From then on, we have people falling on their face in sinfulness, not living up to God's standards, and we have... Though the wages of sin is always death, we have the testimony of Scripture throughout a merciful God who continually pursues after sinners. Why does He do that? Why does God do that? It's because God loves sinners. I want you to know that that's not just an incidental reference here. For God so loved the world. The world there speaks of all people everywhere. The world of sinners, people left to themselves, people by themselves, people who have a sin problem. The evidence of Scripture is filled. The Scripture is filled with evidence that the world here references all people everywhere. And the idea is that we cannot help ourselves out of our sinfulness. But I want to show you, and let's look up a few verses here, and let me show you that this theme that God loves sinners is not isolated to John 3.16. Let's look at Romans 5.8, for example, another really familiar verse to many of you. But notice the words here. Notice how it states what God's attitude is. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His love. Love for us. Listen, Christmas is a wonderful time of year and we love to set up the manger scene and the stable and the baby and the donkey and all that. But you have to remember that this was the beginning of a story of our redemption. This is the, this is the placement of God in the flesh to end up being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. And though we get warm and fuzzy at Christmas time, and we should in the sense that we're reminded by the incarnation that God loves us just the way we are. God loves sinners. He doesn't want us to stay in our sin. And when we kneel down by the baby in the manger, it fills our hearts with joy, but it ought to bring tears down our cheeks to recognize that our sin is going to put him up on the cross. Romans 5.8, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, Romans 5.8, excuse me, God demonstrates or shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's look at Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 3. Let's look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Look what Paul instructs and, and reminds young Titus of. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. There's the incarnation, right? That's the incarnation. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He came in visible visible form. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, He saved us. And this is a good point for us to just stop and be reminded of a really important truth. Look up here for just a minute and, and listen closely. Did you catch what it says there? It says that the loving kindness of God motivated Him to send Jesus... But it says, and he saved us, look at verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. I, I want you to, I want everybody in the room to make sure you understand this. Make sure you understand that you have not designed a system in your own thinking that, me, that goes like this. The logic is that if I do certain good things, I will somehow please God and He will find favor with me and let me into His heaven. We tend to think like that. It's kind of a natural human logical progression that good behavior gets rewarded. And that if I'm good enough, you know, I go to church, I put money in the offering plate, I... um help little old ladies across the street. You know, I'm, I stopped cussing for a day. Whatever it is that you work out in your mind that's kind of bad in your life, and then you figure out how to do it well or do it good, and you think, God has to be pleased with me. That might be human logic, but that is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God, out of His mercy, did you see it there in Titus? That out of His mercy, He saved us. He withheld His wrath, and then He gave us what we don't deserve. That's His grace, and it is of no works of righteousness that we have done. Because the Bible is really clear that our works of righteousness are filthy in His sight. We're not good enough. Sometimes when I'm with, with young people and when we're in a gym where there's a basketball hoop, I'll illustrate it by pulling a guy up who, and ask him to jump and touch the rim. And if he jumps and touches the rim, I'll give him a $100 bill. And I make sure I pick a kid that I know can't even touch the bottom of the net. <laughs> Some little guy come jump out of his shoes, you know. But he can't do it. And I say, I'll give you a $100 bill. Or I whip a $10 bill. I'm like, I'll give you this $10 bill if you jump the, touch the rim. And I'll give him a try. And everybody cheer. But he can't do it. You see, that's people trying to get to heaven in their own strength by their own rights. We just can't do it. We fall short of the glory of God. Ultimately, sometimes I do this too. I'll pull a big guy out of the audience and I'll have him come and jump for the kid and then give the kid the money. So the guy touched it for him. That's what God does. God does it for us, what we can't do ourselves. But I get ahead of us in our message a little bit. Let's go to 1 John 4.19. Look what it says in 1 John 4.19. What we're doing right now is we are proving by looking at some texts of Scripture that God is motivated by love. This is an unbelievable motivation that God loves sinners. The reason I call it an unbelievable motivation is because I hate sinners. You hate sinners. You know a lot of them. You know those disgusting people who throw trash in your yard? Yes. <laughs> Do you know, you know that, that, that 
and you can't say the words publicly that you used to be married to? You can't stand that person. And that person that you trusted once, and they knifed you in the back, and they only deserve to be hurt? And those guys that slit people's throats, what I'd like to do to them? You see, we don't like sinners. We avoid sinners. We don't like to admit that we're part of them. We don't like to admit all the trash that goes on on the inside that disqualifies in the presence of a holy God. But we can't stand sinners. And that's what's so remarkable about these verses. It is so unbelievable that the motivation of God to save sinners is that in He decided to love sinners in spite of our sinfulness. That is most remarkable. He loves sinners. And He didn't come to condemn them. He came to save them. His motivation is His love and His kindness. We're in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Look at this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because why? Because He first loved us. Now back up to verse 10 of 1 John chapter 4, and here's another incredible incarnation verse. Here's a Christmas passage. Let's pick it up with verse 9. It again reminds us of God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or clear among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How did He send and why did He send His only Son? Because it was His love. In this, verse 10, is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice verse 10 again. In this love, this unbelievable motivation, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. That is, in our dead and sinful state. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is kind of a big $10 word in our Bibles. If you're reading out of your NIV, it might translate it atoning sacrifice. It's not an all bad, sacri- uh, bad translation, but something that will help us is to understand what in the world the word propitiation means. If you understand what propitiation means, then you will immediately connect in your brain how much God loves you. Now let me try to illustrate the word propitiation in the mind of God. You need to understand that God is a holy God, right? We understand that. In the book of Revelation, when the angels cry out, they cry out over and over, right? Holy, holy, holy. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he fell down and immediately was reminded that he was a man of unclean lips and despicable, and that God was holy, holy, holy. All right? In God's holiness, all right, He's holy. Because He's holy, He can't look at what? He can't do sin. He can't look at sin. All right? Because He's holy. And His holiness, His purity, His sinlessness, that's what holiness means. It is so far beyond what we can imagine. It's the kind of pure white holiness that makes our starchy whites look like yellow. When we hold up our good works, oh, that's not white, that's yellow, that's tan. He's holy, He's pure, He's completely sinless. And in His holiness, listen, He can't look at sin, He can't, he can't be around sinners. And He's also got another part of Him where He's all justice. And in fact, in His justice, 
He needs justice to take place in the lives of sinners so that his holy demands can be met. One thing he cannot do, he can't allow sin to go on. It's like you let your kid drive for the first time. They got their license. You throw them the keys and it's a great day. And you can drive straight to school and back today. That's it. And then when they're brushing their teeth, you run out there and you check the odometer. Because you know the heart, don't you? And you know what you used to do. And you run out there and check the odometer and you write it down. And later that day after school, you go and check and there's 11 more miles on the odometer than your heart sinks. Your child has sinned against you. They have violated the trust. They have violated the standard. The privilege was taken advantage of. So what do you do? Do you go up to him and just say, hey, have a great day and throw him the keys again? No, we gotta, we got to pay a price here, right? They broke the law. They, they violated your standard. You're worried about them and you can't just look the other way on that and something's got to happen. So you take the keys away. You give them a big lecture. You find out where they went. Then they mouth off. You take their phone away from them. They mouth off some more. You send them to their room. They mouth off some more. You cut their cable TV off. You mouth off some more. You take them out of youth group. They've got to learn the lesson. Something's got to happen. They violated the standard. That's a holy God looking at sinners who's also a completely just God who can't look the other way on sin. His holiness demands that justice be done, that sin be taken care of. But there's another part of God. It's His love. Now you need to remember that God is always 100% holy. He is always 100% just. He's always 100% merciful and he's always 100% love. So he's looking at this sinner that his holiness cries out for his justice to send an eternity in hell and his love cries out and says, let's solve the problem. We're in a lesson on propitiation right now. Stay with me. So God looks at the sinner and he says, I'll let you into my heaven if you're perfect. But the sinner is hopelessly broken He's snake bit. He's dying. He cannot cure himself. But God has, in his love, wants to save the sinner. In his holiness and justice, he has to condemn the sinner. So God comes up with a plan. He leans over and he gives the second member of the Godhead an elbow. And he says, hey, how about this? How about out of my love, you go put on flesh and then you go get lifted up like a serpent in the wilderness so that all the snake bit sinners that I love can come to me because you be good for them. This is, we call it the, a, a penal, as in a penalty, substitutionary death of Christ. Sin has to be paid for. You can't look the other way when they disobeyed and took the car where they shouldn't take it. They've got to suffer a consequence for that. The law's been broken. You go to jail. Don't pass whatever it was and collect $200. Go straight to jail. So God has a plan and in His love, He tells Jesus to go, be born as a, of a baby, to come to the cross, to be lifted up like the serpent... So that he alone could live a perfect life. He alone could keep the law. He alone could satisfy the demands of a holy God. And so in our place, he's lifted up like a serpent so that snake bit people can look to Jesus and live. 
And God, in his love and in his remarkable plan, allows for the righteousness of Jesus. And and this is why it was so awful on the cross, because he became sin for us. He who knew no sin, he took our sin upon himself. That's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God can't look at sin. But it's also he completed the task. At the end, he said, it is finished. That is, I have completed God's redemptive plan. It is finished. And then it says he yielded up his life because you can't murder God. So he gave up his life and he paid the price. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died. Death took place. Sin was paid for. Now whoever looks to the cross, whoever looks to the one lifted up like the serpent, can look and live by faith, believing that that was for you. And God in his mind transfers over the righteousness of Christ to you so that a righteousness you didn't do is counted to you as righteousness. It's what Jesus did and your sin was put on him. And so now the holiness of God, where the justice of God demands penalty, was taken care of by the love of God where he came up with a plan and solved his own problem. I mean, God can't have a problem, but he solved his own problem. He was in love with sinners who couldn't help themselves. And so the holiness was satisfied. The demands were satisfied by the work of Jesus being born in a manger, going to the cross, being buried, rising again. That is propitiation. Propitiation is the the holy wrath of God being satisfied by the love of God through Christ. The demands have been met. The penalty has been paid. And it's been given over to you for free. It's like somebody came and bailed you out. They, they paid your mortgage. They, they got you out of debt and you didn't deserve it. And it, it's been propitiated. It's all been taken care of. That is an unbelievable reality. That God loves sinners. And we can't get that through our head because I said, because we hate sinners. And we don't make a way for sin, sinners to get out of their sin. We love justice, not mercy. So there it is in our Christmas passage today. He begins with this incredible illustration, the unbelievable motivation, which is the love of God, whereby we are propitiated. Let's quickly click off a couple thoughts as we do our crosswind leg turning into landing. We've got a little aviation thing going here today, right? We're going to land this thing quickly. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He loved the world. That's the world of sinners. That's this unbelievable motivation. I want you to see that this is very much an available salvation. It's an available salvation, number three. That whoever believes. Uh, Let's solve our riddle. What does a Cessna in a hangar in Togo and missionary couples getting on a plane with their kids to go over there to fix it, to fly it, a manger, a church and what? It all comes together so that whoever hears the gospel can be saved. The incarnation is about God seeking sinners everywhere. I want you to see that this is an available salvation. I want you to see that it's universally available. He loved the world, and whoever in the world believes should not perish. I want you to see that in verse 15, he says, whoever believes. In verse 18, whoever believes. Three times in four verses, he says, whoever believes. 
It's universally available. It's also universally necessary because Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So little kids in a village in Togo cannot go to heaven. Little kids in a village in Togo and their mom and dad are sinners and they've offended a holy God. And so a missionary in an airplane can go there and tell them about Jesus so they can look and live. That's the Christmas story. That's why God sent people to... That's why God sent Jesus to earth. But you've got to understand that this is necessary. All roads do not lead to heaven. There are not many faiths that work their way out and everybody, just because they're sincere, gets to heaven. Paul said in Timothy, just as clear as can be, in 1 Timothy 2.5, he said, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Peter preached this strongly. I repeat this verse regularly, Acts 4.12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who you are. This is, a, this is an available salvation, and it is available universally. It is necessary universally, and it is universally exclusive. There are no other options. That's why we need to pray. For Dan and Rachel Stoner. That's why we need to pray for the churches in Nigeria and Tom and Heidi as they head back. And as Tom leads that important field ministry. Why care? We care because God cares. Because God loves sinners. I want you to see not only is this an available salvation, but... Let's personalize it this morning. Notice that it says, He did not send His Son, verse 17, to condemn the world in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. We are condemned by our lack of belief. This is a step of faith. Number four, I want you to see that this is a completely avoidable condemnation. It is a completely avoidable condemnation. Let's go back to the Israelite camp where the snakes are biting our ankles. And let's say you're lying in your tent and over there through town past the neighbor's peak of his tent you can see the bronze serpent lifted up and your wife says, look at the serpent! Why? I'm dying. I can't breathe. I'm going to die. She pulls back the tent flap, flap. She grabs your ears and turns your head and says, look! You don't have to be snake bit anymore. That's what he's saying here. You don't have to be condemned. I didn't come to condemn you, God says. I came to save you. This is a completely avoidable condemnation. That's why it's so important for an airplane to land in Togo and for a a truck to show up in a village in Nigeria somewhere and for preachers to be taught, Nigerian pastors to know the gospel and to train evangelists in their church. And that's why we need to reach our neighbors for Christ. Because this is an avoidable condemnation. And God sent Jesus to go to the cross to be lifted up like the serpent that you look and live. We who were snake bit and dying. Some of you remember, and you've got great stories about your snake bit days. You know what it is to be all swollen and unable to breathe and ready to die. Sin, the venom of sin had had just saturated your systems and were shutting you down. And you came to the cross and you saw the serpent lifted up. You saw Jesus in his substitutionary role, taking all the rot and the sin and putting it upon himself. Listen, Christmas is for sinners. 
And we're all sinners. Don't miss it. Sinners everywhere. Christmas is for sinners. And when Jesus came and was born of Mary and the redemptive plan of God began to unfold in a very physical form, it had been unfolding for centuries. But Galatians 4.4 says at just the right time, at just the right place, just according to God's plan, born of Mary, Jesus came in the incarnation to redeem us. To buy us back and set us free from our sin. Right on his Christmas is for sinners. Any sinners out there? Would you look. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. He died for you. All you have to do is look and believe. Did you get that throughout the passage? That whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him, three times, by faith we're saved from our sin because Jesus took our sin for us. Christmas is sacred too, though. Don't you see a little bit why it's so disgusting to sing songs about our two front teeth and a, and a stupid reindeer with a bright nose when it's about God in the flesh going to be raised on a cross and all this stuff gets squished out of us? And we spend so much angst and hurry and struggle. Oh, it's a good thing to buy a gift and give it to somebody who doesn't deserve it. Here, you old sinner, you don't deserve this gift. It reminds me of what Jesus did for you. Right? I'm buying you this gift. I don't want to. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's a picture of his grace. And that's what Jesus did for us. Praise God. Eat cookies and milk and sing away in a manger. There's something to that. And I know that I am given on a bent towards Scroogeism. So you got to watch it, what I say. But do you understand what I'm saying? First of all, Christmas is for sinners. And secondly, Christmas is serious. This is a serious story. People are snake bit and dying in their sin. And we're like putting up those lights on a ladder in the cold. It's all good. We can have everything the world has in Jesus too, can't we? No, we can't. Finally, Christmas is for sharing, isn't it? Christmas is for sharing. So, so we go over to our neighbor's house, and he's really snake bit. He's, he's, he's well into the process of dying in his sin. And we don't tell him that there's a bronze serpent lifted up outside the village. That outside Jerusalem on a cross, Jesus was lifted up. And you come there, and you look, and you live. And you live. What's wrong with us that we can talk about our new craftsman tools that we got for Christmas a whole lot easier with our buddies than we can? The beautiful Savior lifted up like the serpent that'll give you life everlasting. I would say we probably don't believe it. I don't know. Christmas is for sinners. Isn't that a good thing? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this remarkable story. Would you please renew our hearts and renew our minds and teach us to really worship at Christmas time. Thank you for the great work, the great redemptive work that you've done. Thank you for our beautiful Savior, high and lifted up, first on the cross and then in the sky, coming again for us. Father, would you help any 
sinners still in their positional sin here this morning who've never been to the cross, would you open their eyes, please? Father, would you help us to to realize how serious the story of the Incarnation is? Father, would you help us to share this story? I thank you for Dan and Rachel and their willingness and desire to go to Togo for 25 years. Would you burn in us a desire to go across the street this week and share this story with our neighbors somehow by faith, without embarrassment, without shame. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.